Hi, hello, how are you? My name is Elizabeth Dale and I am a Cornish writer and blogger, sometimes podcaster, who has a slight obsession with Cornish history. I just live to tell you the untold stories of Cornish culture, people and places. And boy, have I got a story for you today. This is a real sort of strap yourself in kind of a story. Um, I'm afraid to say just from the start that it doesn't have a particularly happy ending. Um, I should warn you of that. There are some quite um, gory details along the way. Um, So if that's not your thing, maybe uh, go and listen to another one of my uh, podcasts instead. And if you're okay with that, carry on listening. It's not too dramatic, but I just wanted to give you a bit of a heads up that, you know, it's not a happy ending. But then very often in history, the stories aren't a happy ending because, you know, why would we want to know about Joe Bloggs having an ordinary day? We want to hear something a bit more dramatic. And yeah, it's fair to say that this story is a bit more dramatic. So it was a rainy day a few days ago. And as usual, I was bumbling around the countryside on my weekend off and the mizzle kind of drew me down from the moors and I went into Launceston or Lanson as the locals call it and I found myself in the beautiful St Mary Magdalene Church and I was just reading the memorials on the wall for you know something to do and because I always find them interesting and high up on the wall set in marble I saw a plaque that was dedicated to the memory of Thomas Proctor Ching and I'm going to quote what it says. It excuses some of the sort of 19th century esque language. Written on it, it said, Suffered a cruel fate at the hands of ignorant savages by whom the crew were decoyed and murdered on the island of Boydang in the Torres Straits. So, of course, I was immediately interested. Who was this Thomas Proctor Ching? What was he doing in the Torres Strait? And what exactly had happened with those so-called savages? So when I got home, I started doing my research and the first thing that I discovered was that the Ching family were very well connected and a very well-to-do family in Launceston. But that wealth had been come by and rather unfortunate circumstances allegedly. So Thomas Proctor Ching's grandfather John Ching had owned a chemist shop in Broad Street close to the White Hart Hotel and in 1796 he had patented Ching's worm lozenges which were widely advertised as a natural and gentle way of ridding patients of intestinal worms, which were quite a serious problem at that time. Now, newspaper adverts claimed that these uh, tablets, which came in two colours, white and yellow, were, and I quote, for worms and other complaints, and undoubtedly have saved the lives of thousands of children being so innocent as neither to injure the delicate female or the most tender infant. The lozenges were a great success and widely sold across the country um, by travelling salesmen as well as in chemist shops. Unfortunately, however, despite the claims of gentleness, um, the remedy actually contained a white panacea of mercury, 
and in December 1803 a three-year-old boy called Thomas Clayton died at Kingston-on-Hull after taking the remedy and he showed all the classic signs of mercury poisoning. It seems entirely possible that there had been other deaths before this, but they probably just went unreported. But Thomas Clayton's father just happened to be a bookseller and printer by trade, and he actually printed thousands of leaflets claiming that his son had been poisoned by Ching's worm lozenges, and claiming that the newspapers weren't printing the story because of all the money that they were making from the advertising revenue. The Ching family, and in fact by this point John Ching had actually passed away, well they denied the claims and threatened to sue Mr Clayton and just continued trading. The lozenges made them very wealthy and by the time Thomas Proctor Ching was born, his father, who was also called Thomas, was running the chemist shop and he later became mayor of Launceston and um, was a successful tea and wine merchant too. So that gives us a little bit of the background as to who Thomas Proctor Ching actually was and as a consequence of his um, family's money, um, Tom, as he was known to his friends, um, had a public school education and then began a career at sea and at the age of 21 he was a midshipman on the Charles Eaton which was a trading ship with three masts owned by William Gladstone of London and captained by Frederick George Moore. Now the ship had a crew of 26 which included three midshipmen, 13 seamen, a surgeon, a carpenter and there were two cabin boys, John Sexton and John Ireland and there was also a ship's dog called Portland. Anyway, on the 18th of December 1833, the Charles Eaton sailed out of the Thames bound for the port of Canton in China with a cargo of lead, muslins and wool. Canton, by the way, is uh, present-day Guangzhou, excuse the pronunciation in, in China. So uh, the Charles Eaton uh, reached the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa on the 15th of June and there they took on fresh water and then sailed on for Sydney in Australia which they reached by July. While in Sydney they took on six passengers. Captain Doily of the Bengal Artillery who was on his way to Calcutta with his wife Charlotte and their two sons, seven-year-old George and two-year-old William. They also had their Indian nanny with them and the sixth passenger was a London barrister called Mr Armstrong. The Charles Eaton left Sydney on the 19th of July 1834, heading for the Torres Straits, which, if you don't know, is like a narrow band of water between the tip of Queensland and Papua New Guinea and Timor, so right at the top of mainland Australia. At first, they were sailing with another ship called the Jane and Henry um, alongside them, uh, but unfortunately the two ships were separated in a gale. And a few days later, on the 27th of August, 
the Jane and Henry fell in with another ship, the Augustus Caesar, and these two ships sailed on together, picking their way through the reefs and the islands. Now, if you look at a map of the area, you'll see that it is absolutely pickled with reefs. And it's obviously sort of the upper part of the Great Barrier Reef. And there are loads of rocks, loads of tiny off islands, as well as larger islands, such as Horn Island, Prince of Wales Island, and the inventively named Wednesday Island and Thursday Island. I'm wondering if, you know, that has something to do with when they were found or something. Anyway, there are 274 islands in total in the Torres Straits. So it was close to Thursday Island that some of the crew of the Augustus Caesar spotted wreckage from a ship floating in the water. A party of men was sent ashore and they found more wreckage and a keg on the island which convinced the captain, who was Captain Wiseman, um, that it had come from the Charles Eaton. The news of the loss of the Charles Eaton was then sent on to London and printed in the newspapers a few months later. It obviously took a while for, for the news to, to get back home. But the fate of the crew remained a mystery. Um, by October 1835, rumours had begun to circulate that there might have actually been survivors, and this was because four men, who claimed to be survivors of the Charles Eaton wreck, had been picked up on an island near Timor, having made their way there some 12 months earlier in an open-top boat. And in fact, stories of survival in this particular stretch of, of water are not unusual at all. Um, one of the, the most famous, I suppose, is the story of convict Mary Bryant, who was from Foy. And she actually did a journey of 5,000 kilometres in an open-top boat in 1797 from the penal colony in uh, New South Wales all the way to Timor. And then, of course, there was also William Bly of the um, Mutiny on the Abound fame um, who did a similar journey also ending up on Timor and so the families back in England really started to push for there to be some kind of search of the islands for survivors and for this to take place as soon as possible. So in July 1836, which was nearly two years after the, the wreck, uh, Sir Richard Bourke, who was the governor of New South Wales, sent out a ship called the Isabella for the Torres Straits and the plan was to scour the area, to speak to the natives on the island and to try and discover what had happened to the crew and the passengers. The captain of the Isabella was a man called Charles Morgan Lewis. Now, once they reached the, the area where they thought the shipwreck had happened, the crew uh, began dropping bottles over the side of the ship, um, which had messages in them for any survivors that um, they hoped would find them and would know that they were out there looking for them. How they were supposed to reply, I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, <laughs> perhaps this is a good point to mention that... Um, during this period of time, there were inevitably tensions with the people that were living on the islands in the Torres Straits, and this was almost certainly the fault of the colonialists. Um, but from what I understand, there was actually a good deal of violence going on between the different tribes on the different islands as well, and Bork was really keen that 
they remained on good terms with the locals, realising that this was probably the best way that they were going to find out any information about what had happened to the Charles Eaton. And so the Isabella came really prepared to trade with the local people, um, who were apparently very keen on um, obtaining metal objects, especially axe heads and knives. So on the 19th of June 1836, the Isabella arrived at Murray Island, which is an island which is way out in the ocean to the east of the tip of Queensland. And as soon as the, the ship came into view, the islanders began to congregate um, on the beach and the crew quickly spotted that there was a white man standing among them. Now pretty soon the islanders launched their canoes and came out to the ship ready to trade and they showed the crew that they had stocks of uh, tortoiseshell and coconut and plantain and luckily some of the crew um, who had obviously travelled to that area before spoke a little bit of the native language and were able to indicate that they were only interested in trading if they could speak to the white man who was still on the beach. Now at first the natives were quite reluctant, but they were apparently very keen on having the axes that, that, were, they, that they were shown were on the ship, that were on offer to them. So they went back and they, and they fetched the white man from the shore. And when uh, Lewis asked who he was and where he was from, he said his name was John Island and he was the cabin boy from the Charles Eaton. And Lewis asked him if there were any other survivors and he told them that young William Doyley was also still alive. There was a tense exchange when it became clear that the crew wanted to take Island with them and um, it was pointed out that uh, by Ireland that one man had been particularly kind to him, a man called Dupart. So in order to try and sort of de-escalate the situation, uh, Dupart was actually invited on board the Isabella and he was sort of showered with gifts. They gave him fine pieces of linen and other kinds of rewards which they told him were for his kindness and this kind of relieved the tension a bit and Lewis was able to inquire as to where the boy uh, William was and they promised that they would bring him the, the next day. The next day came and there was no William and Lewis began to get a little bit frustrated with the, the situation and after a lot of cajoling and then finally threatening, um, the islanders eventually produced the boy. Now, by all accounts um, that I've read, poor William was absolutely terrified when he saw the white men because after all, he'd been just two years old when he'd been shipwrecked. Um, so he probably had absolutely no memory of his life before. And, you know, the people on the island had been kind to him, they'd cared for him, and he was frightened to be separated for them, from them. But they did give uh, William to Lewis on the Isabella, and the family that had looked after him were also given gifts, and they prepared to leave. Now, John Island then, uh, the cabin boy, he began to explain what had actually happened. And this is when we learn the fate of our Cornishman, Tom Ching. Now, what John Island started to explain was uh, that the Charles Eaton had hit a reef near the Boydang Islands, which are now known as the Sir Charles Henry Islands. 
uh, on the impact most of the lifeboats had been destroyed and the four men that had been rescued near Timor had left in the only one that had been serviceable. The rest of the crew and passengers stayed on board the stricken ship until it began to break up in the waves and then they actually built themselves uh, some rafts to try and escape. Two rafts were launched but they weren't very well made and they could hardly support the weight of, of the people that were on board and eventually the two rafts actually became separated from each other after they, they had left the ship. After two days and two nights on the water, the raft the island was on came close to land. And I'm going to read uh, a little bit from an article that was written by a man called Alan McInnes. After two days and nights upon the raft, up to their waists in water, and having eaten very little food, they passed an island and then saw several more ahead. Soon afterwards, a canoe paddled towards them containing ten or twelve natives, who, as they approached, stood up and extended their arms to show they had no weapons. On reaching the raft, the natives got in and were friendly and peaceable. The natives proposed that they leave the raft and go in the canoe. They hesitated until the midshipman, Thomas Ching, said he would, as he should then have a better chance of getting back to England upon which they all boarded the canoe. They left the raft about 4pm and in an hour landed on a sandy beach which the natives called Boydan. They plodded around the island in search of food and water but were so exhausted by fatigue and hunger they could scarcely crawl and fell on the ground in despair. At this time the peaceful attitude of the natives changed alarmingly. The natives stood grinning and laughing in the most hideous manner and it soon became evident that they were exulting in anticipation of their murder. When their massacre became obvious, Mr Clare, the first officer, calmly read prayers to his fellow survivors and urged them to be resigned to their fate, after which they commended themselves to the protection of the Almighty. They lay down, worn out and exhausted, and were soon asleep. Island was roused by a shout, and upon looking up saw the natives murdering his companions by dashing their brains out with clubs. The first killed was Ching, and after him Perry, and then Mr Mayer, the second officer. The last to meet his fate was the first officer, Clare who, in an attempt to escape to a canoe, was overtaken and killed by a single blow to the head. The next day, the natives collected the heads and paddled to another island they called Pulan, where their women lived. There, Island saw the two doily children. Elder George told him that the first raft had landed at Boydan and that all the passengers except himself and his brother had been instantly murdered. His mother was killed by a blow with a club and his little brother was in her arms at the time but was saved by one of the native women who afterwards took care of him. Island saw the skulls from those on the first raft. Those of Mrs Doyley and Captain Moore were plainly distinguishable, the former by her hair and the latter by his features. The heads were suspended by a rope to a pole which was stuck up near the huts of the women, round which they danced every night and morning, accompanying their infuriating gestures with the most horrid yells.
So I think it's worth saying that um, this kind of narrative really fed into that idea of the, the murderous savage and the newspapers of the time and of course the, the general public reading them just really lapped up these kind of stories. But apparently, according to Mr. McInnes, the taking and preserving of skulls was quite a common practice on the islands in the Torres Straits. And there were even special head carriers which were made so that warriors could more easily take home um, their prizes. So now we're learning that everyone is dead apart from the children. However, sadly, George and the other cab cabin boy, Sexton, um, he died soon after as well. Uh, both of them probably of disease, although some reports claim that they were murdered too. Now, after this, Ireland says that the, uh, the local people, they treated him fairly well. He was fed and cared for and he wasn't sort of forced into work or anything. Um, but after hearing John Ireland's story, Captain Lewis was absolutely determined to find those that were guilty of the massacre and he also wanted to find the remains of, of the, the rest of the crew and passengers and he began going from island to island and eventually did hear from some of the local people that the skulls of the, the white men were being used as a, um, for some kind of religious ceremony on a nearby island called Oreed, which then afterwards became known as a Skull Island. By the time the Isabella arrived at Oreed Island, it was completely desertive of, of any natives who had obviously been warned um, that they were coming and why they were coming. So Captain Lewis took a party ashore and I'm gonna read you a little extract again, which will explain what they found when they got there. Seeing another group of trees, he walked there and discovered an avenue lined on both sides by shells painted red, leading to a dilapidated low thatched shed. On entering it, Lewis discovered the long-searched-for skulls. The skulls were systematically arranged around a large figure, the central piece of which was a tortoise shell smeared in red. The figure was between four and five feet long by about two and a half feet. A semicircular projection stood out from the forehead of the figure, also made from tortoiseshell, fancifully cut and ornamented with feathers. In the centre of the figure, from the projection upwards, was a small bundle of broken arrows bound together. The eyes of the figure were detached and made from silvery shell like pearl shell. The face was surrounded by shells methodically arranged and stitched together with small cord of native manufacture, but the skulls were tied to the outer perimeter of the figure by rope of European origin. There were obvious signs of violence and many of the skulls were cracked, some partially knocked in, others bore deep incisions, some even had hair driven into the indentations. The skulls of two females and two children stood out, and attached to one was long sandy hair. So after Lewis had removed the whole figure and all the skulls to the ship, the crew set the whole island alight. They burnt everything, all the trees, all the huts, just left it completely decimated. 
and from what I've read there were about 40 skulls that were found um, but only 17 of those were eventually identified as being European. The Isabella arrived back in Sydney on the 12th of October 1836 and the governor ordered that the 17 skulls be given a Christian burial at the cemetery on Devonshire Street. However, um, in 1904, they had to be moved to a cemetery at Botany Bay when a new train station was built, um, but they had a new memorial built for them there, erected in their honour. So that is the story of Tom Proctor Ching from Lonson in Cornwall and how he met his fate a very, very long way from home. And I'm sure you can imagine that the story uh, slowly unfolding um, to the people in England and to Tom's family in Cornwall, who would have read it in the newspaper, created a great deal of interest and emotion at the time. So I, I hope that you've enjoyed my retelling of this rather long tale. It wasn't a story that I had ever heard of before until I decided on that particular rainy afternoon to go and stick my head into the church and, and have a little look around. And I think it just goes to show again that you never know those amazing little snippets of history that you're just completely unaware of. And also, you never know what's gonna crop up in Cornwall's history. It never fails to amaze me just how much there is to, to learn. And I think that's what keeps me so interested all the time is I just can't find stories like this one. And okay, it's, it's sad, um, but it opens up a whole other world to us that I never would have learned about and I never would have known about if I hadn't just read that plaque on, on the wall of the church. So I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider liking and please consider sharing it with your friends and subscribing. And please do go and explore my blog as well. There's more than 300 posts on there now. And they're all stories of places and people in Cornwall, the lesser known stories, that's my thing as you probably have guessed. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed it and I will be back with you again very soon with another strange, bizarre, unheard, untold story of uh, Cornwall's history. Thanks now. Bye.